Good morning, Indelible Grace Church. Um, my name is Wade, for those of us, so those of you who don't know me. Um, I'm back from my paternity leave, and uh, our son Isaiah was born on January 2nd. Um, so we've been taking care of him. Um, it's been, uh, someone, someone told me um, with two kids, it, uh, it gets exponentially more difficult, and I laughed at him. And then uh, I texted him yesterday. I said, uh, dude, you were right. And then he laughed at me. So that, that's how it's been. Um, but we, we recognize that Isaiah is a blessing from the Lord. Um, Christine, is. Uh, it's been difficult for her, but she's been doing great um, taking care of Isaiah. So I want to thank especially the elders and the staff for allowing me to take this time off. Um, John and Tracy and Michael, they took on extra uh, extra load of work for uh, while I was gone. So I want to especially thank them. Um, but it is good to be back, and uh, we're going to look at God's Word today. So if you will, turn with me to your bulletins, to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Second Corinthians 3.18, this is in your bulletin, um, or if you have a physical Bible, you can read along with me. Just one verse that I'll read right now. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the Word of God. So we've been going through the spiritual disciplines, uh, uh, through a sermon series on the spiritual disciplines. And what are the spiritual disciplines? The spiritual disciplines are the things that we do as followers of Jesus to maintain our walk with Him. If Jesus is going somewhere, we want to know where He's going. We want to follow closely to Him. And the disciplines are the means by which we train ourselves to follow him well. So as we began this series, we've talked about prayer. We've talked about scripture reading. Last week, Pastor John, he gave an excellent sermon on worship. And today we're going to talk about worship again. And I'm going to approach the topic of worship from a slightly different angle. I want to talk about how we are shaped by whatever or whoever we worship. Last week, one of the points that Pastor John made was that everyone worships. Everyone worships, whether or not you call yourself religious. Everyone worships. And we need to make sure that our worship is going toward the right thing or the right person. And this is one of the reasons why we come to church on Sundays. There are many reasons why we should come. But one of them, one of the primary reasons you should come is this. That over and over and over, we come worshiping things other than God. And when we do that, we become deformed. And we need to be brought back again and again and again. And when we come on Sundays, we're saying, God, reform me. Reshape me. And we do that by worshiping Him. What or who we worship determines who we become. What or who we worship determines who we become. And that's kind of the premise that I'm, I'm working off of today. Worship is a response to a, an object of worship. And the ways that we respond to an object of worship, this molds us into a certain type of person. So we all worship, and how do we know what we worship? Look at what you love. What do you desire more than anything? This is what you worship. And my, my goal for the next few moments is for us to consider what is it that we truly desire? What is it that we want more than anything? 
what can we do to reshape that desire if it's not the proper thing? And I want us, for us to become a people. I want IGC to be a church that is on the way to becoming one that, that, that we, we're constantly thinking about how we can develop the discipline to desire what is worthy of our love because we don't always love what we should. So three points to help us to that end. These are in your bulletin. Uh, number one, our desires determine our habits. Number two, our habits determine who we become. And number three, we must desire the right thing. So our first point, our, de- our desires determine our habits. Um, for, if you are a basketball fan, um, even if you aren't a basketball fan, you know who LeBron James is. He is not just an athlete, but he is a cultural figure. 50 years from now, people will still know who LeBron James is. Um, he's been playing in the NBA for 17 years. Uh, and this entire time that he's been, he's been playing, he's been, uh, pl- he's been in the All-Star game every year. Four times he was the NBA MVP. He's a four-time NBA champion. Every time he won a championship, he was the MVP of that series. And uh, I was just reading a few days ago on the New York Times website. There, there is a, there's an article about sports cards, and I guess sports cards are back in, um, not just as a collectible, but for some people as an investment. And there was one guy featured in this article. He owns two LeBron James basketball cards. And guess how much it's worth? These two. A total of $7 million for two pieces of cardboard with the image of LeBron James printed on them. This is LeBron James. He is 36 years old. He's well past the peak that a lot of uh, basketball players are at. But he's still playing at the top of his game. And he's said, um, as recently as a few months ago, he has no plans to retire yet. So he's considered by many as one of the greatest basketball players of all time, perhaps the greatest basketball player of all time. Um, not just a basketball player, but he's considered as one of the most, the greatest athletes of all time. So consider LeBron James. A question for us. Was LeBron James born a great athlete? I submit to you the answer is no. His genetics likely gave him the raw materials. It gave him the potential for his body. But over the decades, over many, many years, he had to adjust every aspect of his life so that he could become the athlete that he is now. And I, I looked up uh, his, his regimen, his, his routine. It's pretty intense. Um, in order for LeBron James to be who he is, he needs to do this. He works out five to seven times a week. Even during the off-season, he does conditioning, cardio, strength training, Pilates, yoga. He maintains a strict diet. He feeds only on the healthiest foods with the proper portions. And uh, sometimes he'll allow himself to eat a cookie or a bowl of ice cream, but this only happens during the off-season. He gets at least 12 hours of sleep a day. This includes a midday nap every single day. He meditates daily. LeBron James has developed a set of habits. This is how LeBron James spends his time when he's not on the court. And what do his habits tell us about what he values? They tell you that he values winning. They tell you that he values longevity in the league. This is what he said in an interview on the Tim Ferriss show. I've been very consistent with training my body, rehabbing my body, eating, having my body be very clean throughout this journey because I've always wanted to have a long career. This is what 
LeBron James desires. And these desires have shaped his way of life, his habits. So what about us? What type of habits do we have? And what do those habits say about what we care about? It's not what we say that we want or what we love. It's what we do through in the day-to-day rhythms of our lives that shine a light on what is most valuable to us. What is it that you want more than anything? A few questions. Do you check certain apps on your phone constantly? How do you budget your time with certain people? How many hours of Netflix have you racked this month? How many hours or minutes have you racked on your Bible this month? How much energy have you given to news or physical exercise or the building of your career? How often and how much do you give to being upset by your spouse or your children? What do our habits and our mental energy say about what we desire? These are the obvious examples. And we can use these as diagnostic questions to examine ourselves. These really obvious things in our lives. We can, if we sat down for 20 seconds, we could come up with a list. But there is another type of habit that we're not so aware of. There are the things that we do unconsciously. So, for example, if I were to ask you, um, tell me where the letter T on the keyboard is. It would probably take you a while for you to explain to me where exactly on the keyboard the letter T is. But what if I put a keyboard in front of you and I ask you, type the letter T? It would take you probably half a second to do that. You wouldn't even have to look down because this is instinctual to you. Because for many of us, we've been typing on a keyboard for, de- for, for years. For many of us, it's been decades that we've been typing. And instinctively, we know where that key is on the keyboard. And so it is with so many things that we do and the way that we think and the way that we behave because we've been trained to understand reality and ourselves a certain way and we don't even realize that this is happening to, happening to us. Consider the things that you read on social media, the podcasts that you listen to, the shows that you watch, the people that you talk to, the home that you grow up in or you grew up in. These things, little by little, imperceptible amount by imperceptible amount, they tell us these, this is how things are supposed to be in the world. This is what's important. This is what is worthy of your time and energy. This is what you should love. They may not tell us outright, but we've absorbed the message and it affects our thinking. Our minds and, ha- minds and hearts have been habituated our minds have been habituated. If you um, consider the word habit, I'm, uh, this is another form of the word habit, habituate. Um, the root word for habit is the same root word for that of inhabits. To inhabit something is to dwell in something. Inhabits are things that seep into our lives, our hearts, our minds. Our hearts and minds have been habituated. There is a thinking underneath our thinking. And this thinking trains us to love and desire something. Our hearts and minds are being habituated by the things that we surround ourselves with. And when this happens, our mindsets, our worldview, our thought patterns start bending 
to the things that we are unconsciously learning. As Bay Areans, you may know that there is a huge emphasis placed on individualism and inclusiveness and tolerance and wealth. These things are so valued in the Bay Area. Many of us care about these things a whole lot. And it's because we're immersed in an environment that tells us that these things matter. It's not because you read one book or you had one conversation with someone. It's because the message and, of, and these values have seeped into our hearts and our minds 10,000 times in 10,000 little ways, imperceptibly. And they make us who we are. James Smith puts it this way. Dispositions and habits can be inscribed in our unconscious if we regularly repeat routines and rituals that we fail to recognize as formative practices. Think of that phrase, formative practices. They're practices that form who we become. He continues, there can be all sorts of automating going on that we do not choose and of which we are not aware, but that nevertheless happened because we are regularly immersed in, in environments loaded with such formative rituals. You are developing habits that you may not be aware of. There are two levels of habituation for all of us. There are the, the habits that we consciously decide to integrate into our lives. And then there is another type of habit, the way our hearts and minds have been habituated by the culture that we're in, whether it be Western culture or Bay Area culture or the culture of our families or our social groups, even of the church that we attend. These are the things that, that determine how we orient ourselves to the world. So this is our first point, that, that, our, desires, that our desires determine our habits, um, and also that our unconscious habits determine our desires. Our next point, uh, a, a couple years ago, or the next one is, um, our habits determine who we become. A, a couple years ago, um, my friend and I, we were walking around Tokyo, and we stepped into a fruit shop, and if you're familiar with the fruits or produce, produce situation in Japan, um, you may know that fruit is not widely available the same way that it is here in America. Um, fresh fruit is it's a, it's a luxury. It's pricey. And um, as, as we walked into this store, I've never been in a, in a store like this. Every individual piece of fruit had its own special place on the shelves. Um, and the only thing that this fruit store sold was fruits. And um, there, there were all these beautiful, they looked perfect, these pieces of fruits. Um, there were small packages of strawberries that sold for, I'm not exaggerating, $50, 50 US dollars. There were honeydews and cantaloupes on the shelves that went for 60 or 70 US dollars. And then I saw what was most interesting to me. There were watermelons. And when we think of watermelons, we're thinking, oh, like, I'm going to go to Costco. There's, a, there's this big, dusty uh, watermelon. It's oval. It's, it's uh, $5.99. I'm going to cut into it. It's going to be delicious. Um, but not these Japanese watermelons, because these watermelons were cube-shaped. Cube-shaped watermelons. Have you ever seen a cube-shaped watermelon? 
So how this happens is farmers, they place young watermelons into these glass cubes and, and they grow up and they take on the shape, the form of the cube that they're in. The shape of these watermelons are determined by some external force pressing in on them as they are trying to expand. Cubed watermelons. And what is true of these watermelons is true of us as well. All of us are being defined and shaped by some type of external force. Like I mentioned earlier, our our media diets, our habits, our lifestyles, the people that we spend time with, all these Elements are like glass that press in on us as we grow. That means that we need to be mindful of the things that define us and what will define us. What type of person have I become already? What type of person am I becoming? A few questions to help us think through this. Um, what, What is your default response to situations? How do you react when you're not thinking about what you're thinking? Where does my mind wander when I'm bored? What is my default response when things don't go my way? What is my default response when I read something in the Bible that I don't like or that I don't agree with? What is my default response when I learn of suffering? Or what is my default response when I myself suffer? What is my default response when someone has sinned against me? What is my default response when I've sinned against someone else? And how we answer these questions will reveal what your glass cube has done to you. Your answers reveal what you really love and what animates and motivates you. Your glass cube, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, this is what you love, this is what you worship. What we love determines who we become. And when we understand what it is that we think when we're not thinking, this this kind of um, thought process, um, thought patterns that's undergird that, that we're not conscious of, when when we're when we understand that, then we can confront ourselves. This is when we can rethink what is habituating me, what is inhabiting the space in a, in my mind and my heart. In the context of spiritual disciplines, it means that we ask constantly. What type of person am I becoming? What do I love and what am I learning to love? All of us on this field, we come misshapen. All of us watching online, we come bent and molded. We're more full of sin than we, we can even imagine. We're, we're f- so far from what we, can, what we should be, what we want to be. We want the wrong things. We shun the right things. So many of us are tired and discouraged. And God is gracious to us by showing us, you are really messed up. You are out of shape. You have been deformed. Because God loves us too much to let us remain deformed by the wrong objects of worship. He gives us something else to to direct our attention toward. And this is where our passage today comes in. 2 Corinthians 3.18, let me read it again. We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you understand what this passage is saying? 
that we can become what we were created to become. God doesn't leave us as we are. He says, my child, let me shape you into what I created you to be. God reveals his glory to us. God reveals his glory to us. And that is what will change us. That is what will rehabituate our hearts. Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. Do you know that if you are in Christ, you are headed to glory? And this is central to our spiritual disciplines, that we see the glory of God and that we are transformed by it. This is the most important thing because the glory of God is what we, what we were created for. And we all know this verse from Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I were created for the glory of God. This verse from 2 Corinthians is in reference to Moses' encounter with the Lord in the Old Testament. God reveals himself to Moses and Moses was physically transformed by his encounter with God. His face shone brighter than the sun and Moses had to wear a veil when he was speaking to his fellow fellow Israelites because they couldn't look at him otherwise. It was too much for the people of God to look on the face of someone who was in the presence of God. That's how great the glory of the Lord is. And this verse tells us something remarkable. That through Christ, we can come before the Lord and look him in the face and not be destroyed. Can you imagine that you can look into the face of the creator of the universe and not disintegrate immediately? This is true. And now we can experience his glory the full weight of who he is. And when we do, we become more like him, Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. We become more like him in our moral transformation. This is what we call sanctification. We'll begin to reflect more and more the goodness and the character of God. And one day there will be a physical transformation. We will have glorified physical bodies, just like the resurrected Christ. You become what you worship. Is that what you want? Are you desiring the right things? Are you worshiping the right person? And this brings us to our final point. We must desire the right things. Earlier I said that worship is our response to our object of worship. We're always responding to something or someone. The reason why we chase after someone or someone something is because in our eyes, they're worth the pursuits. The reason why we bend our schedules for some type of opportunity is because we've made the calculation in our, our head. We've counted the cost that this opportunity is worth missing out on other things. The reason we long for something or someone is because that object or that person is is worth our mental space and our sleepless nights and the physical pain. The reason we give up elements of ourselves is because we've decided that that something is worth the sacrifice. We're willing to pay the price for the something. This is worship. What is worth your life? That's what you worship. In the church context, we sometimes think of singing and the listening to the word and music and fellowship and, and meeting together. We, we, we sometimes think that this is worship. And in a sense, it is. 
but these are just expressions of worship. If you want to know what you really worship, dig into your heart. Dig into your heart and see what your deepest desire is. What do you want more than anything? There is the expression of worship and there is real worship. Everyone has a deep desire, therefore everyone worships. Every object of worship will cost you something. David Foster Wallace, um, who was not a Christian, he gave a commencement address in 2005 at Kenyon College, and he articulates this idea that everyone worships. And I've heard this quote um, 50 times in so many sermons, um, so I'm going to quote it this one time. Uh, this, was, this is my chance. Uh, this is what he says. This is not a Christian saying this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it JC, he's referring to Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Let me say that again. Pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. GameStop. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. He continues, worship power. You will feel weak and afraid and you will never and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fair at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. What is David Foster Wallace saying? That everyone wants something. There's no such thing as not worshiping. There's no such thing as an atheist. And whatever that something is for you, it will demand something from you. It will never be enough. And that thing will never ultimately deliver what it is you want from it. So what do you want? What are you willing to sacrifice for? What is worth it to you? The things we revolve our lives around and give our time and attention to, we've decided, probably unconsciously, that these are the things worth devoting our lives to. Your career, your family, your relationship, your intellect, power, your health. Is this worth your very life? Our second passage today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and there's a scene before us that takes place at the end of time. And this is when everything that has ever been has ceased to exist. Everything has turned to dust. Every nation, every government, every political movement, all the Teslas, all the Apples, all the Amazons of the world, all the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos, 
every admirable and honorable person, every type of technology, every self-righteous hypocrite, these things that we give our lives toward and for, all gone, all dust, footnotes in history. Everything that we ever gave our lives to, gone. And so there is a scene of elders in this chapter. They are bowing before the throne of Jesus and they see him for who he is. And this is what they sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And the author of Revelation, John, he continues, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. These elders, these creatures have looked back at all of history. They've looked at the entire scope of mankind. And they now know that there is only one person who is worth our lives. The lamb that was slain. The lamb that was slain. There are other scenes of worship in the book of Revelation. And they they show us, they give us many reasons why God is worthy of worship. The fact that God is God, that's reason enough. The fact that he created everything, that he's holy and sovereign and just, these are reason enough to worship God. But here in this chapter, we see the central reason he's worth our very lives. This is what the elders say. Worthy are you to open the scroll. Listen to this word. For you were slain. Jesus was slain and by his blood he ransomed you and me. Jesus has paid for our sins so that we could know glory. You've been given a new life. You've been given a new heart. You are no longer a child of hell. You are a child of God. Your body is a temple. Christ himself resides in you and you reside in Christ. So I must add an addendum to what David Foster Wallace said. He says that every object of worship will eat us alive. And here's my addendum. Every object of worship will eat us alive except for one. He gave his life for us so that we would live. Every other object of worship will disintegrate us and deform us. But if you worship Christ, he makes you whole. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross makes it possible to worship him. And is he not worth it? Is he not worth it? If he is, we need to reshape our lives so that we see Jesus as worthy of worship. This is rehabituation for those who want to follow Christ. 
that we put Jesus in front and center every day. And this is a battle. This is really hard. And this is where the spiritual disciplines come in. How are you going to put Christ in front of you every day so that you can be be transformed from one degree of glory to another? How can this happen? If you are in a community group, this week you'll be discussing the ways in which we can be habituating ourselves to love and worship Christ more than anything. And if you're not, talk to me. I'll, I'll connect you with a uh, CG leader. Um, and in case you're unable to participate in the discussions this week, here are some questions for all of us to ponder in the coming days. Uh, question number one. What do I immerse myself in? What do I immerse myself in? Question number two. What are the things I do today what are the things I'm doing today to, that are shaping me into the person I will become tomorrow? Question number three, how do I combat the messages that tell me that something other than Jesus is more worthy of my worship? A few practical steps, and I'll, I'll end with this. A few practical steps that will help you habituate your love. And there are more, but I'm just going to give you some really practical steps that I, I was able to think up of. Um, number one, be a part of a group. Be a part of a community group or a discipleship group. Uh, some group of other believers who will push you toward Christ. Another one, make sure that you are participating in our services. Pay attention. These give a structure and vocabulary for us to use through the rest of the week. Number three, engage the disciplines, the ones that we've been talking about. Prayer and worship and being in the word and fellowship, discipleship. Here's one, uh, sing and sing frequently. This is the first time I'm, I'm mentioning music at all. Uh, well, we sometimes think of worship as, as music. It's that, but it's so much more than that. And here is one of the very practical ways. You can not just worship God, but that you can learn to worship God. Sing frequently. Sing poorly if necessary. Last week, John said that he's not a great singer. So I'm going to say, be like Pastor John and sing poorly if you need to, but sing good music. Good music gives us the words to articulate what we believe or hope to believe. And the music ingrains these truths into our hearts. Um, Christina Cherney, she created a Spotify playlist of the songs that we listen to or that we sing on Sundays. Go find that on Spotify. Think about the things we do throughout the day. Ask yourselves, why am I doing this? Um, what is the thinking underneath my thinking? Is this thing that I'm doing necessary? So these are the things we can do. Why would we do them? Is Jesus worth these things? Is Jesus worthy of our very lives? He is. He is. Will you pray with me? Father, the, the truth is that we don't love you so often. We don't love what we say we love. We don't love what we should love. But you are gracious. You are always calling us back. You're always putting Christ before us so that when we see him, we can be changed from one degree of glory to another. I pray that that would be true of us, that we would love Christ more than anything. I pray that you would be gracious to us. I pray that you would change our hearts, mold us into our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.